The term founder can be a tricky thing. Can someone really found a place that already had people living in it? Does a founder have to do anything other than just be the first? In some older historical material for Birmingham, four men get called Birmingham's founders, which is problematic in itself because three of those men moved to the land they purchased with families. So why aren't their wives, siblings, and parents also called founders? This becomes even more problematic when we consider that one of those founders didn't even live on the land he purchased in what would become Birmingham, and maybe only visited once. This episode, we are looking at that guy, Benjamin Kendrick Pierce, the founder who wasn't, why he never even lived here, what his legacy was, and why he has so many things in Birmingham named after him. This is Birmingham Uncovered, a podcast by the Birmingham Museum, where we are exploring the diverse and compelling lives that built Birmingham, Michigan into the community that it is today. First, some background on Birmingham. We are a city of approximately 20,000 people over 4.73 square miles, approximately halfway between Detroit and Pontiac and Oakland County. This area was occupied by members of the Three Fires Confederacy of Indigenous People before white settlement in the area started in the late 1810s. Birmingham became a city in 1933 and today is known as a prosperous and multifaceted community with a thriving cultural scene. Unlike our two previous subjects, Benjamin Kendrick Pierce started out life with nearly every advantage. Born to an established family which traced their ancestry back to the Massachusetts Bay Colony, Benjamin's father was a Revolutionary War hero who ended his service as a general and was a two-time governor of New Hampshire. Born in 1790, he was the second oldest of nine children and was sent to Phillips Exeter Academy before entering Dartmouth College in 1807. Attending college already marked Benjamin Pierce as one of society's elites. Even in fields like law and medicine, a college education wasn't strictly required to practice. The United States had only nine colleges and seminaries on the eve of the American Revolution, although started by various Protestant denominations originally to train ministers. By 1800, however, more and more colleges were popping up around the nation, but none yet were public colleges, making a college education the mark of an elite background. At Dartmouth, established in 1769, Benjamin was hobnobbing with the sons, women wouldn't be admitted until 1972, of the elite and the powerful. It seems as though our Benjamin was a bit of a prankster, though, and he had to leave school after damaging a campus building by firing a cannon at it. Today, you'd probably face legal charge in addition to being kicked out. But apparently in the early 1800s were a different time when it came to property damage via cannon. After Dartmouth, Benjamin went to study law with a family friend. While a degree or class attendance wasn't necessary, most prospective lawyers studied while working under an already practicing lawyer, like an apprenticeship, before taking the bar. And yes, Kim Kardashian and Benjamin Pierce do share this commonality. Stars. They're just like this one guy from the 1800s. Had the War of 1812 not happened, 
Benjamin might have become a lawyer in New Hampshire and perhaps embarked on a political career of his own. But just like many young people have done all throughout history, he abandoned his previous plans for the army. Why did he join? We don't have anything from him stating his why. Perhaps he was always attracted to the army lifestyle and was looking for an opportunity to join. Perhaps he joined out of a sense of patriotism. The army then was one of the major ways to make a name for oneself and to advance in society, something men whose fathers had secured the nation's freedom may have strove for. Another intriguing possibility is the Society of Cincinnati, a fraternal organization of military officers who served in the Continental Army with membership open to their children. Members were often highly placed in the army and government and looked out for their fellow members' families and children. Benjamin's father was a member, and Benjamin inherited his membership after his death. The perks of being a child of the society, namely in this case, better commissions in the army, may have drawn Benjamin in. We briefly discussed the War of 1812 in our last episode on Elijah Fish, but let's even more briefly summarize it here. The War of 1812 started in, who could have guessed it, 1812, and was between the United States and Great Britain. In the Midwest, it was about the fur trade and Western expansion, but for folks in the East, like Benjamin, it was about the British impressing American ships and crews into the Napoleonic Wars against France. Pierce was a first lieutenant in the 3rd Artillery, a position that maybe he acquired due to his previous experience with cannons. The war officially ended with the Treaty of Ghent on December 24, 1814, but due in part to peace negotiations taking place across the Atlantic Ocean in the town of Ghent, Belgium, news of the treaty took several months to reach North America, and during that time several more battles had taken place. While there was no clear winner to the war, as both sides maintained previously held territories, it did give the United States back Fort Mackinac and the British-built Fort George, renamed Fort Holmes, a fortified earthen redoubt that helped fortify Fort Mackinac. And this would be the next step of Benjamin Pierce's career. The quaint island between Michigan's upper and lower peninsulas that bans cars and has killer fudge was once a very important fort. After the War of 1812, the United States used it as a point to control the ever-so-important fur trade and to make sure those pesky British didn't come back. And the fur trade itself at this time on Mackinac was run by women. In particular, Magdalene Laframboise, who was descended from a French fur trader named Jean-Baptiste Marcot and an Adawa woman named Marie Nakesh, a granddaughter of Chief Kuinaquat of the Adawa. Mixed-race individuals like Magdalene ruled the fur trade because they straddled European culture and native culture. Magdalene had a French name, could speak French and English, and was baptized a Catholic. But she also spoke Chippewa and Ottawa, and was raised in her mother's Adawa culture. This made her a master at negotiating between both sides. She married Joseph Laframboise and developed the fur trade in what is today western Michigan taking the furs to be further sold and traded at Mackinac. The Adawa were a matrilineal society, 
and many of the white men involved in the fur trade secured their contracts in the trade by marrying a Nadawa woman. After her husband died, Magdalene ran the operation herself, along with raising her children, Josette and Joseph. It is estimated that she earned between $5,000 and $10,000 per year, an almost astronomical sum at a time when a carpenter could expect a wage of about $1.45 a day on average in the United States. Benjamin Pierce was placed in command of Fort Mackinac in 1816, and in April of that year married Josette Laframboise, making an extremely advantageous match. Besides coming from great wealth, Josette had been educated in Montreal and was widely reported to be very beautiful. But here begins a stream of what I can only call bad luck. Pierce always seems to be at the right place, at the right time, and making what appears to be really good decisions, but something always seems to mess it up for him. Josette died in 1820, leaving behind two children with Pierce. Josette Harriet, sometimes referred to as Harriet Josephine, and Benjamin Langdon, who died in infancy. Between 1821 and 1835, Pierce bounced between Fort Barrancas in what is today Pensacola, Florida, Fort Delaware in Delaware, and Fort Hamilton in Brooklyn, New York, and he got promotions along the way. The year 1836 would see him again return to Florida to fight in the Second Seminole War. And I know what you're thinking. Can I understand the Second War if I completely missed the First? The Seminole Wars were three military conflicts taking place between 1816 and 1858 between the United States and the Seminole people. The Seminole were originally part of the Creek, a loose confederacy of ethnic groups and tribes that lived in the present-day southeastern United States, Georgia, Alabama, and northern Florida. As white settlers pushed more and more Native Americans off their traditional lands, the Seminole people settled further and further into Florida and welcomed individuals from other tribes as well as formerly enslaved individuals and free people of color. There are two stories about how the Seminole got their name. One is that their name comes from the Spanish Cimarron, meaning wild or free or runaway. The word may also come from the Greek Simonoli, meaning something along the lines of separatist or frontiersman, and it is debated whether or not this word is related to or comes from the Spanish Cimarron. The meaning of the name is important to know about the conflict. The Seminole had no interest in assimilating into the mold that outsiders, whether they be Spanish or American, wanted them to conform to. Their freedom also constituted a threat to slaveholders, as they welcomed freedom seekers fleeing enslavement. The First Seminole War happened before Florida was even part of the United States. In 1817, Andrew Jackson led an incursion into Spanish territory, and destroyed many Seminole and Black Seminole towns because slaveholders in Georgia were upset that the people they were enslaving were seeking freedom there. And yes, that is the Trail of Tears rat bastard Andrew Jackson. This episode features two terrible U.S. presidents. In 1818, the United States and Spain negotiated to transfer the territory 
and from there on, the government of the United States worked hard to pacify and relocate the Seminole people. The Second Seminole War, the one Benjamin Pierce was sent to Florida for, was the Seminole people resisting the Indian Removal Act of 1830. The law, as described by Congress, provided, quote, for an exchange of lands with the Indians residing in any of the states or territories, and for their removal west of the river Mississippi, end quote. This law saw over 60,000 Native Americans from eastern states and the Midwest forcibly removed, primarily to present-day Oklahoma and Kansas. This act led to the Trail of Tears, wherein tens of thousands of Native Americans were forcibly removed from their lands and forced to walk to what is present-day Oklahoma. Historians debate just how many folks were forced to move and how many died along the way, but a conservative estimate is that about 46,000 were forcibly removed and 4,000 to 10,000 died along the way. The Seminole put up a fierce resistance to the act, launching acts of guerrilla warfare from deep in the Everglades, where the American army had a hard time navigating. The army found their supply lines and outposts destroyed or captured, and nearby plantations burned. Osceola emerged as a leader of the Seminole during the war, and, like Pierce's wife and mother-in-law, was of mixed ancestry. In Osceola's case, he was Muscogee and Scottish. During the war, Pierce and his men built a small fort, named Fort Pierce, in his honor. The war was declared over in 1842. Osceola had been captured under a flag of truce when he went to discuss terms of peace, later dying in prison in 1838, and his head was displayed in a drugstore owned by one of his captors. Many Seminole villages were burnt, and the people carted off and forced to move west. The ones that remained would come under fire from the United States government during the Third Seminole War from 1855 to 1858. After 1838, Pierce bounced around a few more posts. During the Mexican-American War, Pierce's ill health, he appears to have contracted malaria while in Florida, prevented him from serving in Mexico. Instead, he stayed in Texas and Florida before being sent north to Fort Adams in Rhode Island to recover in a less malarious climate. And I promise that one of these days we will have an episode where malaria doesn't show up. But that day is not today. While endemic in the past, nowadays in the United States, only about 2,000 cases of malaria are diagnosed each year, and it only has a 0.3% mortality rate. One of the hardest things sometimes for me to wrap my head around is just how often diseases that most of us are only slightly aware of in our modern world show up in basically every person's story from the past. Bad luck continued to dog Benjamin. In 1823, he married Amanda Boykin, a woman from a wealthy enslaver family in Alabama. He called her, quote, the woman of my choice. So perhaps it was a love match. It also might be throwing Chris Pratt levels of shade on his first wife. Stars, they're just like this one dude from the 1800s. Benjamin and Amanda had five children before her death in 1831. Only three of those children would outlive their father, 
Amanda died while Benjamin was stationed at Fort Delaware after giving birth to a son named Benjamin, who also died. Her remains were almost incinerated during a fire at the fort, just to add insult to injury. Oddly enough, Pierce's first wife also died shortly after giving birth to a son named Benjamin, and that Benjamin also died shortly after birth. Even weirder, Benjamin's younger brother Franklin had a son named Benjamin, who fell from a train and died. Benjamin just doesn't seem to be a very lucky name in the Pierce family. Benjamin married a third time in 1838, when he married Louisa Gertrude Reed of Delaware, the great-granddaughter of Declaration of Independence signer George Reed. She died in 1840. Benjamin Pierce died in a New York hospital where he had been convalescing on April 1, 1850, having served 38 years in the Army. It's hard to say what his legacy might have been had he kept his health and continued his military service. The second-in-command at Fort Pierce, William Tecumseh Sherman, rose to great heights during the Civil War, and it's not unlikely that Benjamin may have as well. But wait, I hear you exclaim. I have never once heard you mention Birmingham. And that's true, so let's correct that. On December 30th, 1818, Pierce obtained the Northwest Quarter Section of Section 36, which today lies at the center of downtown Birmingham. He did this a month after John West Hunter, Elijah Willits, and John Hamilton obtained their lots that abut his. All four plots converge on modern-day West Maple Road and Old Woodward Avenue. Hunter et al. bought their land to settle on and make money from folks traveling into the interior of Oakland County along the Saginaw Trail now present-day Woodward Avenue. Pierce, like the other three, was a veteran of the War of 1812 and entitled to a discount on his land, and he probably purchased it as a retirement property. While he never lived on his land, and maybe only visited it once or twice, he did rent it out to a sister before being forced to sell it in 1844 for $2,500 after meeting with financial hardships. Ironically, that land today is probably one of the most expensive pieces of land in Michigan. I don't even want to know how much a storefront rent is. So why count this one guy who didn't even live here as a, quote, founder? On the one hand, he was the fourth of the first four landowners. Four is a nice round number, unlike three. And it also allows us to present the first four owned pieces of land as a nice circle, centered around the intersection of Old Woodward and West Maple, instead of just three pizza pieces and leaving us having to continuously answer where the fourth one is. But if I have to advance my own theory, it's name recognition. Unlike John West Hunter, who has much fewer things named after him despite actually living here, Benjamin Pierce was a brother to a president. Franklin Pierce was Benjamin's younger brother and was elected as president in 1853 and served until 1857. And yes, we have reached the second terrible president of this episode. While he may not be on any top five worst lists, 
He was one of those presidents prior to the Civil War who saw the war coming and did his absolute best to make things worse. We'll leave aside debates about whether or not the Civil War is inevitable, but signing the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which repealed the Missouri Compromise and launched the violence known as Bleeding Kansas, and enforcing the Fugitive Slave Act while believing that the growing abolitionist movement was a threat to the nation's unity, was 100% not the right call. The subject of our previous episode, Elijah Fish, would like a word. And sometimes when it comes to legacy, it's all who you know. Would Nicolas Cage be a household name if he wasn't a Coppola? Would Benjamin Pierce have a school and street in Birmingham named after him if his brother wasn't president? Stars. They're just like this one guy from the 1800s. Join us next week as we further deconstruct the idea of the four founders of Birmingham while talking about the Prindle sisters, three women who are here from the earliest days of the settlement. I'm Caitlin Donnelly, and thank you for joining us in this episode of Birmingham Uncovered. Special thanks to the Birmingham Area Cable Board for PEG grant funding that made this podcast possible. Also, thanks to past and present staff of the Birmingham Museum, whose research made this episode possible. To see maps of Benjamin Pierce's land in Birmingham and his portrait, check out our website, link in the show notes. For questions, comments, or concerns, please contact the museum at museum at bhamgov.org.